This is Bonjour Chai, the There's Nothing Funny About War Crimes edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal. I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, the hows and whys of defining genocide. We will talk to Professor Frank Chalk about what is happening in Ukraine right now and whether we should be concerned as Jews. We also speak with Bob Ray, the Canadian ambassador to the UN, on what Canada is doing about the ongoing war and in investigating war crimes in the region. And for our word of wisdom, we send David on a fact-finding mission about Kohanim and liberal Judaism. First, Alana, David, how's your week been? Busy. How so? What are you up to, Alana? David, what was that face? You were like, uh." I I always Um, want to give you the space first. I mean, I'm in rehearsals. Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, I mean, I'm in rehearsals. I'm, you know, still doing all the regular stuff, writing writing my column, doing this, um, auditioning a lot, um, showing my boyfriend around Montreal. It's like the busiest I've been in two and a half years. And my body is like, what the heck is going on? I'm also biking everywhere. So there's like the physical exertion on top of it all. But it's like really great for getting, you know, some fitness in. What else have you shown him about Montreal after introducing after introducing the bagel to him? You know, did you show him Montreal locks? What, what kind of other goodies? The bagel. Is there such a thing as Montreal locks? There's Is locks there? that's in Montreal. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's a... <laughs> Not a have, thing. I mean, we have locks. <laughs> you can get locks in Toronto. Did you take him to Schwartz's? Mm-hmm. Well, we've been, we've been kind of like shell hopping. Um, well, we eat kosher meat, so we can't actually... Oh, you both eat there. kosher meat. Oh, okay. And we've walked by it. Yeah, she's okay. a good Jewish girl. She's a very good Jewish girl. Yeah, I've been showing him around the plateau in the Mile End. Cool. You sound like somebody who is absolutely not preparing for Passover. I mean, I'm doing Passover at my mom's, so... Um, I mean, we have a roommate here who isn't who isn't Jewish, so it's kind of complicated. Yeah, no, that's fine. It's just, you know, for, like... <laughs> Those of us who have to like host all these meals and all of this stuff, like we're like I'm in full on preparation mode. Um, it's not that crazy, but still, like it's thoughtfulness. The the lists have lists sense. now, and uh, what are those preparations, Avi? Because I've never had to like do it on my own. I've always gone to friends' houses, or I've always had my parents to rely on for Passover dinner. So, what like are the nitty gritty of the of the preparation that I have avoided? I mean, we clean the house. Okay, I've never done that, top to bottom. Get rid get rid of all the chametz. Um, and if you're hosting a Seder, you've got to, you know, prepare food, right? Meals that are the Seder part. So I got to think about what dishes that I'm going to make and then buy all the food because, uh, we buy all new food for Pesach, right? So everything has to be kosher for Passover. And that requires like not relying on just about anything in the pantry and buying everything from scratch. So now I have to say, what's my menus? What am I going to buy? What are the kids going to want for meals? you know, the following week and so on and like so the forth. the macaroons and the Coca-Cola kosher for Passover. Yes, absolutely. And all that stuff, but no chicken because chicken apparently is so expensive. No, it's, we're, you gotta, we gotta prepare. Um, there's a lot of meat. You gotta decide which, what night is going to be a brisket and what night is going to be the, you know, the, the chicken and tomato and olive sauce and what night is going to be this and what night is going to be that and all of the other, you know, Seder foods and the specific Seder foods and getting all the dishes up because we have a separate set of dishes just for Passover and then another separate set of dishes for Passover over for dairy right so you got to bring all these things up and do all of that and then uh, and then there's the emotional preparation and the like spiritual preparation of gonna like what am i gonna say at the seder and what are we all gonna say and how are the kids gonna be ready and how are we gonna do something meaningful for them so it's uh it's it's a grind it's work um it's good work See, rather than like an actual holiday it sounds like a headache it sounds like such a work that you actually never get time to enjoy anything either the food or the spiritual commitment because you're just so busy panicking going around the city all the time um i'm not panicking 
I've been doing this for, you know, 16 years, give or take. And uh, so I think I'm ready. It's just, it, it takes work. And uh, it's like any other holiday and hopefully you get to enjoy it. And uh, yes, thank you, David, for pointing out that the people who generally prepare for Passover, not always the women, um, but those people often have a lot of work up until the last moment. So I highly encourage all our listeners um, to go to the people who have been preparing for the Seder, whether it's Bubby or your husband or your partner or whoever it is, and go buy them a spa day um, after uh, Passover so that they can actually relax and uh, maybe on Cholomot and then a following spa day for after Pesach also. I think that would be a very, very good idea. So, I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, it means that there's not a lot of leisure time. It's not a lot of the pleasure reading is going, you know, out the door. I haven't watched TV in weeks. um, And like, therefore, I just sit there and I work and I make my lists and I got my menus. The only pleasure reading I have is cookbooks and deciding what I'm going to make. You know, there we go. Speaking of TV, um, I just read about this new Jewish matchmaking show that Netflix is going to be releasing. It's the same people who did Indian matchmaking. Did either of you watch it? Because I did. Probably not. I'm assuming not. I missed it completely. How was it? Actually, quite entertaining. It actually made me think a lot. Normally, I'm I'm not really a reality show person for the most part. But in the pandemic, I was really running out of things to watch. Like This is like two summers ago. Um, and I just decided to give it a go after a friend of mine said that it was actually really fun to watch. And I did actually notice a lot of similarities between the way, like, obviously, like, Indian culture and Jewish culture is very different, but in the way that, like, the family um, involvement of, like, the parents wanting, like, a specific thing and them feeling, like, the guilt of, like, I need to meet, like, an Indian person and then going through all the process and, like, all the customs and, like, are you the same type of Indian as me? And it did make me actually think about, like, Jewish matchmaking. So on the one hand... I think it will be interesting to see what the show looks like. But on the other hand, I'm a little scared because even when the Indian show came out, a lot of people from that from that community were really offended because they felt it was a, a lot of stereotypes and showcasing a lot of very rich people, which it, it was like some like very, very rich people were on this show. But both of them were about matchmaking. They had like a matchmaker. It's not like a typical dating show in this. They're going to have a shadchan. So what are your, your thoughts on this? Is this going to, is this bad for the Jews? Is this good for the Jews? I mean, I think in general, this is going to be very exciting. And whether people think it's it's abhorrent or whether they think it's wrong, everyone's still going to tune in to watch whether how good or how bad it really is. I mean, I miss, I miss the good old days, you know, the good old days when dating, you know, meant just going on to Tinder or Grindr or J-Swipe. Remember those good old days where you could just meet someone old fashioned on an app itself? Those, those are, are the good, good old days, days for you and me, Alana. I think I can't speak for Avi itself. Maybe they actually, like, two people had to meet in a bar. Are those days gone? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, yes. People met (laughs) met in person at Hillel or at bars or at events (laughs) or, you know, wherever. You met people and that's what you did. Yes. I met my boyfriend in person. Wow. That's so old-fashioned. It's rare. I don't get it. I, I have to say, like, first of all, I'm not scared at all. I'm not worried about what is this, like, what's the splashback going to be for the Jewish community? Because if you think about my unorthodox life, and I'm sure you haven't because nobody does, because 
all that happens when these shows come out is that, um, you know, we all sit there and fret how good or how bad is this going to be for the Jews? This is going to be so bad for the Jews, so many stereotypes. And then a month later, nobody thinks about it. Nobody thinks about it at all. Um, it just becomes something that an academic will write, you know, something about and says, yes, remember that in 2021, there was a TV show called My Unorthodox Life, and it showed this person and she was kind of orthodox, but she wasn't. And the kids were and she ex-orthodox. Nobody cares anymore. It's not even on people's radar how good or bad the Jews are portrayed in that show. I have not seen Indian matchmaking. I probably will not see what is it called Jewish matchmaking or is it called like Yenta yeah, something or other. So. Anyways, I'm, I'm not going to watch it. And frankly, I mean, maybe I will watch an episode just out of like sheer curiosity. But I think the three of us should sit down one night, Avi, and watch it together. Maybe, maybe that would be hilarious. Let's do that. Live stream, yes. you know, our reactions. Um, but like at the end of the day. Good or bad to the Jews, I don't care. I think that, like, I think it's just yet another Jewification of an existing premise. Um, you know, I'd like to see, you know, if, if we're going to do this, why did they take, like, Indian matchmaking to Jewish matchmaking? I think that, like, we should take the absolute number one hit show yes. on Netflix right now called, what is it, Is It Cake? And we should do <gasps> a love Jewish version idea. of it and call it, like, Is It Chametz? Right? And, like... You make these confections of like food and it looks like a cake. And then you have to ask like, is it chametz? And <laughs> no, it's made with potato starch. Ha ha, fooled you. And the and, and the kicker is that nobody's ever going to get fooled because you don't get fooled from that sounds really niche. Passover bread and Passover cakes and stuff like that. Um, but I think that that would be a fun show. You just right? found the best way to segue from Jewish matchmaking all the way to like my new favorite Netflix <laughs> show, which is Is It Cake itself. It is the, it is the most relaxing, enjoyable experience I'm having I right now watching it on that, TV. Though. You got to get in with it. Do you know the premise behind this? Have you heard about this? No. So they have, okay, tell me if I'm right, David, um, because I haven't seen that either, but I've heard about it. They basically get these people to make cake um, that looks like other things. Like, is it uh, a bag or is it an avocado? And it's basically not cake. It's basically fondant. And it's like sculptures made out of that. And the judges have to decide, is this piece the actual cake or is that the actual avocado? Right. And whatever that might be or however it is. Um, And then they just use this knife to cut through it. And then it's like, no, it's an avocado. Fooled ya. Right. And um, I think that like that would be funny for Hametz, right? Like. Bad food, not taste. Anyways. I enjoy how we've left Jewish matchmaking behind for cake TV shows. And to show, as Avi said, what was Again. it? The, 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 the bemoaning, the, the inanity. That was the word I was looking for. The inanity of TV shows right now on Netflix. It's a... You know what would actually be funny, right? I don't want to see like this Jewish spinoff Indian matchmaking. I want to see the crossover where they take shadchans and use that shadchans to like fix up Indian couples and use Indian matchmakers to fix up Jewish couples and show that at the end of the day, it doesn't even really matter. Right. And so it's like house swap itself. Absolutely. Except that it's spouse swap. This is getting complicated. Mm -hmm. You get it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyways. So that I think would be funny. um, But I don't see the point or the value. I mean, clearly some executive signed off on it, so they are going to make money. But I think that's about it. That's all I have to say. On that note, um, we got a big show today. Uh, Before we get to that, um, let's talk a little bit about our sponsor, right? Passover's coming up. Did you guys get Afikoman presents when you were like kids for finding the Afikoman? All the time. Let me tell you. Highlights of Afikoman presents. Let's go. Let's hear. Let me, this isn't a highlight of a present, but let me tell you about my family's tradition, which is the reverse of the way that most people do it. So normally 
Actually, I always get confused when I try to say this because I'm used to my version. I'll just tell you what we do. So my grandfather had to look for the afikomen that we grandchildren hid. And the idea was that if he couldn't find it, we all get presents. It was the best. That's cruel, Alana. You're making uh, someone who is old Why? and potentially infirmed search the entire it household. It was my idea. This, this, is, this, is, this is like you're making Zadie and Bubby go he around searching the it. entire house. <laughs> and when they get tired, you say, no, you got to keep going or else you're not going to get the We prize. played hot and cold. At the yes, end. so did we. At the end, we played Hot and Cold. The idea was that he, like, sometimes he would kind of lie a bit. He like, wanted maybe to he give knew. presents to all he of the kids. He wanted to give presents. There was a really funny year, though, that my brother, he was a baby. Uh, we we hid the afikomen in the couch cushion. And my grandfather went upstairs. He was, like, looking. He comes downstairs. And we were, like, getting hotter, getting hotter. And then we see baby Daniel sitting on the floor eating the afikomen. <laughs> he was, like, in diapers. So that year didn't really work out. You had to wait a good 24 to 36 hours for that Afi Goman to like finally be found. In a very different way. Yeah, there you go. Whoa. Anyways, uh, let's go back to the original point. Um, Afi Komen presents. What were some of the highlights that you guys ever had? It was like, it was always like money. It was five bucks or 10 bucks. And then probably with inflation as, as the 80s became the 90s, I'm sure it was $20 at some point too. Wow. Now with inflation, now with now with huge inflation, maybe maybe this year when I sit down at the Seder table, it'll, it'll even be a hundred bucks. I definitely got. I bet you Alana got a cow costume <laughs> for her Alfie Komen present. Um, I did not. I definitely got physical presents. I don't remember them off the top of my head, to be honest. But I feel like because you asked this question, you have a really good anecdote. What was your best present that you've received? I don't. You don't. I mean. We got totally like you'd go to the toy store and you'd pick out something and that was okay. it. Um, our kids, you know, get the usual same sort of thing and uh, we try not to be extorted too, too much. Uh, but I'm just saying that, you know, maybe you should give yourself an Afikoman present. And um, especially if you've been preparing for the Seder and koshering your house for Passover and cleaning your kitchen and all that. And you should go to Atelier Lou and buy yourself a beautiful Afikoman present. Nice segue. Um, Buy yourself a watch. Buy yourself a pair of earrings. um, Buy yourself a necklace. Um, Eric Goldberg will uh, totally find you the most perfect um, Passover-related in some way or other theme, right? Um, The Israelites left Egypt with all of the gold and silver of the Egyptians, right? So uh, what better to reward yourself on this Feast of the Exodus, right, with some gold or silver from Atelier Lubijou Tree in West Mount Quebec? I see what you did there. Yeah. Well played. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And if you want 10% off, uh, you use code BON18 at atelierlou.com. So go check out Atelier Lou and uh, enjoy your Passover. the play been it's been great uh we just visited the theater yesterday because we've been rehearsing at the office of the theater company but the show itself is at kin experience downtown montreal um and it's really exciting to see how it's all going to play out uh in a very interesting way that i will not reveal um but yeah it's going to be an intense and uh great show so be sure to check it out it's called muzzle tub wait is there a MacGuffin? I don't know what that means. No? I feel like I've heard that and I don't know what you're talking oh, about. come on. 
David, what's a MacGuffin? Oh, my, no, I, I hope you weren't going to ask me that. Because I, I remember I was listening to another podcast where they talked about MacGuffins all the time, and I still at the end of the podcast was like, I have no idea what a MacGuffin really means. It's like a, it, it's what um, uh, you, you put in sometimes in a movie or something, like as a spoiler, is it a red herring or something? I'm going to read to you all from Wikipedia. <laughs> In fiction, a MacGuffin is an object, device, or event that is necessary to the plot and the motivation of the characters, but insignificant, unimportant, or irrelevant in itself. The term was originated by Angus MacPhail for film adapted by Alfred Hitchcock and later extended to a similar device in other fiction. What would be an example of this? Well, imagine if, like, you used the Afikoman as, like, a weapon, right? And it would be insignificant mm-hmm. until you oh, got to I the see, final scene. Like and all of a sudden thing. people are like, oh, that's why we were talking about the Afikoman. Because we wanted the person to like, yeah, think about it. don't think we have any of those. Okay. But I don't think we have any MacGuffins. Thank you for the lesson. Um, but uh, the play is very Jewish. Uh, directed by Jewish uh, performer, director Ellen David. Um, and starring Howard Rosenstein and myself as uh, the two other Jews. And then there's Kevin Black. And uh, one other performer, Jelani, um, and it's going to be great. And to remind everybody, but the but the play itself was written by a non-Jew. I'm curious where he got his inspiration from. Um, that is a much longer conversation. But from the interview that I saw, where he answered this question, he said that he likes a challenge, and that he'd had some experience working with the Jewish community before. He's a French Canadian. Um, and did a lot of research, and honestly, he did a pretty good job. Listen, I think that I, I, I refuse to go to shows that are written by non-Jews but are designed for Jews. That, that doesn't fly by me. Have to be written by Jews, have to have all Jewish actors and all Jewish tech <laughs> staff because the lighting should feel Jewish. Um, that's my rule for going to theater. What is what I've, does Jewish lighting oh, feel on. like, Avi? Is it like a searing, <laughs> no, burning light, or is it very like everything flowy is and Hanukkah easy. candles or Shabbat candles? Oh, Right, and for okay. a big spotlight, you use a Havdalah candle. I'm glad I've spent enough time with you to be able to detect the sarcasm, because there does come a time where my brain just doesn't compute uh, sarcasm. But uh, I know you well enough now. <laughs> there we go. Um, but no, the opposite is actually true. I w- I'm excited to go see this play. Um, and for those of you who heard last week and want to repeat, and we will keep telling people, we are offering... Um, Bonjour Chai listeners, uh, a $20 ticket instead of $30 on Tuesday, May 3rd. Um, all you have to do is go to uh, the link that we have in the show or visit like Infinity Theater on the web um, and enter in code Chai promo um, for a $20 ticket on Tuesday, May 3rd. We hope to all see you there to, um, you know, fet Alana uh, and her wonderful performance in Mazel Tov. So go check it out. So there's been renewed talk this week about whether there are war crimes occurring in Ukraine and whether there is a genocide unfolding as we speak. This week, Canada has committed to sending a team of RCMP officers to aid in the investigation of war crimes in Ukraine, as well as announcing an investigation within our own borders by interviewing refugees arriving from the war-torn country. But the question still remains as to what Vladimir Putin and Russian forces are doing. Is it a genocide? And if so, does that change anything? With us to unpack these questions is Frank Chalk. Professor Chalk teaches history and is a scholar of the Holocaust at Concordia University, where he co-founded the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights. Dr. Chalk, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you, Avi. It's a pleasure to be here. We also teach the history of all the other, and I teach the history of all the other genocides, not just the Holocaust. 
Excellent. So that's the, and that's it really where we're starting with today. So if we can get a bit of a background to get us started, um, how do we define genocide and where did that idea of defining uh, a crime like genocide come from? Well, a Jewish legal scholar by the name of Raphael Lemkin in 1944 from the United States uh, sanctuary, which he arrived at just barely uh, f- uh, from Sweden, uh, escaping the Nazis in 1939 coined the term genocide. The word had not existed prior to his writing. And uh, in 1944, he suggested that it was not sufficient to have charges of first-degree murder or uh, parallel criminal law charges. We needed an international criminal statute against the crime that he called genocide, which meant the murder of a whole nation. And As the United Nations debated this proposal, the definition of genocide in Article 2 of the new convention, UN Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, stated, first of all, that the intentional destruction or assault to destroy of a national, racial, religious, or ethnic group constituted the crime of genocide if the intent of the perpetrator was to destroy all or part of the group as a group. They used the phrase as such. And the criminal mind of the perpetrator had to be demonstrated by the prosecutors in order to obtain a conviction for genocide. So you may know that in normal criminal law, First-degree murder must be intentional and what the lawyers call a mens rea or a deliberate act. It cannot be uh, simply a byproduct. It has to be a targeted, clear goal of the perpetrator. And this is, uh, genocide is a crime analogous to first-degree murder in international criminal law. Okay, so um, in order to be able to define something, so it's important to label certain things uh, a genocide or a war crime, which I assume at this point probably also has a different definition. Um, It's important to be able to do that in order to prosecute it in the international criminal court. Are there other reasons why one needs to define something as a genocide? It is necessary to meet a very high bar in order to convict anybody of genocide. Uh, First of all, only individuals can be charged, not states. Second of all, in order to convict, you have to be able to show that the criminal intent existed at the time the crime was committed. You have to be able to show that the victims were targeted because of their membership in a racial, national, religious, or ethnic group. So, for example, if I'm trying, say I'm Putin, and I'm trying to kill everybody who is a Ukrainian nationalist uh, or a nationalist period, uh, that could very well be labeled a political crime, but it's not covered by the Genocide Convention because destroying political groups as political groups does not come under the Genocide Convention. Moreover, if I was trying to kill people based on gender or sexual preference. That would not be covered by the Genocide Convention either. 
these uh, crimes were debated, but the Soviet Union asserted that political groups should not be protected under the Genocide Convention. Uh, the reason they did it was that they were clearly guilty in many cases of committing mass murder of political groups. But they argued that their real reason was that political groups are amorphous, the boundaries around a political group are permeable, and therefore they only wanted to protect so-called permanent groups like racial, national, religious, or ethnic groups from which you cannot simply uh, escape the perpetrator's uh, definition or aim. So what we're looking at here is an area of international criminal law which is very young. This architecture did not exist before 1945. If we go back to December 1942, when the Allies got the first strong indications of mass murder at places like, uh, let's say, Majdanek and uh, Bergen-Belsen and uh, Auschwitz, etc., they issued in December 42 a promise in a declaration that the Germans and any others who were committing the crime of mass murder or mass atrocities would be punished when the war ended. And so December 42 is the first time we begin to hear about this idea, although we can trace it all the way back to the Middle Ages. The fact is, practically speaking, this was the first time that a prosecution of major war criminals took place at a place called Nuremberg. And then we are the heirs of Nuremberg. So, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing everything you're saying about the importance of the International Criminal Court, but maybe I'm a bit pessimistic here and I'm thinking, so what? This is all great legal, um, heady stuff. But then is someone ever going to be accused? If someone is ever accused of war crimes like Putin, they're almost going to be guaranteed to escape justice, right? Spend out the rest of their days in some palatial estate. And I'm just saying, is this all really for show? Is this sort of to set up that we, we have order in our society? And if you break international law, you may be held accountable, but you'll always escape justice. So I'm sort of thinking like, what is the point of setting all these organizations up? Yes, David. Uh, and your question is a very important and a very common question, especially among young people today who are slightly cynical about talk of international criminal law. Uh, They believe the crooks always get away with it. The killers always get away with it. So let me just give you a, a little bit of contrary evidence, but also agree with you that any conviction under international criminal law for mass atrocity crimes which often involves a head of state, and these people are really protected by other parts of international law, which often involves senior military officers who equally are often protected, is a miracle. It's a miracle that we should give thanks for. So let me just give you a little bit of uh, some reference points, let's say, okay? So after Nuremberg, uh, Slobodan Milosevic, former head of the Serb, Serbska Republic and the government of, he worked with them and he was head of the government of Serbia, a pretty important country in those days. Uh, in May 1999, he is convicted of a number of crimes or indicted for a number of crimes. He dies in prison 
because of his heart condition. But in fact, uh, he is uh, one of the more senior people to ever be indicted, and he was clearly on the road to conviction. President Omar Bashir of Sudan, the first serving head of state to be indicted for genocide by the International Criminal Court in July 2010. Two years later, in May 2012, Charles Taylor, the first head of state to be convicted of crimes against humanity, sentenced to 50 years in prison, which he is now serving. We have a record, so to speak. <laughs> but most people don't put this together because everything happened incidentally and discreetly, and each case seems to have existed in a vacuum because uh, our attention spans are not long enough and because often the framing is very narrow. But if we pull the camera out and look at the broader optic, in fact, the precedents are there. I mean, we didn't speak about Pinochet, who barely escaped the Crown Prosecution Service and my friend Judge Garthon in Spain uh, when he got off at the House of Lords for medical reasons. But if we're bringing you know, this to today right now and we're talking about Russia itself, Russia has a veto, veto it can veto on the Security Council of the UN, right? So even if, even if we bring this to the court itself, Russia will always just be able to say, no, we don't agree, end of story, right? Doesn't this sort of like- You're Absolutely right, David. You're absolutely right. And that's the architecture of the United Nations Security Council, which says that the five permanent members who were the key allies in World War II and who drafted the United Nations Charter get a free pass. And I would add to that list nuclear powers. It's highly unlikely that any head of state of a country that has nuclear weapons is ever going to be indicted for these serious crimes. And the reason is reality. It's just as if you wanted to charge the Pope with war crimes. Uh, he doesn't, he's the only one I know who could get off without an atomic bomb. No, because I'm just thinking about what Zelensky has said recently, like, you know, UN, is it time to dismantle? Is it just time to shut it all down if you're so ineffectual with these war crimes, if genocide is allowed to commit? Okay, so let me utter a phrase that comes to, to any historian's mind when you say that. The League of Nations. When the UN formed in 45, 46, the League of Nations did dissolve itself, but it was a dead duck long before then. And the reason was it did nothing to stop Mussolini in Ethiopia. It did nothing to stop Hitler in the Sudetenland. And by the time Hitler had invaded Eastern Europe, the League of Nations uh, was already, uh, you might say, uh, irrelevant Germany had resigned from the League of Nations. I believe Mussolini had also resigned from the League of Nations, and Japan may have as well. The point is that the key perpetrators of the crime of aggression, which, by the way, now is also an international crime, had quit the League of Nations because there was talk about condemning them. And once they were out, uh, they formed the Axis powers, etc., and the Axis powers were really uh, an alliance of existing and future war criminals. Are there, you know, are there downsides? Meaning, is there a good reason sometimes to limit the use of the word genocide, to say that this is not a genocide and that is? Absolutely. So what are some examples of that? Well, first of all, if you use the word genocide, I would say promiscuously, 
That is to say, you just throw it against the wall every time something bad happens. It becomes totally meaningless. Mm -hmm. Right now, it still has shock value. And that's why a lot of people use it, because they get the attention of the media. And then the same question we're looking at today is the massive set of atrocities already committed by the Russians in Ukraine, genocide. That's why we're talking about it. Would we be talking about Ukraine if Zelensky hadn't said it was genocide? My guess is we might not have. And yet, uh, the irony of all this is Ukraine had a real genocide before the convention existed in the famine of 1931 that Stalin created in order to terrorize the Ukrainians and to destroy a very significant number of Ukrainians. But this time, it's not a genocide. It's not a genocide because racial, religious, national, ethnic groups are the protected groups. And we would see much more evidence of the intention of destroying either physically or spiritually the Ukrainian people in the isn't that a national group, though? They're not a national group considered, the, the Ukrainians? They, they, they are, and I do consider them a national group, and that's, the, that's where I'm going. So we would see much more evidence of that in either the collection of Ukrainians so that they could be executed by machine gun fire or gas or something, or uh, a systematic and sustained process imposed by the Russians which may be on the agenda for the future of destroying their language and their culture and also killing a large part of their population. So what we're seeing right now, let, let's talk about what we're seeing right now. We're seeing the destruction of civilian buildings and the murder of civilians. This is in areas that the Russians have occupied, but there were tens of thousands of Ukrainians in those villages and cities. And we have not seen the kind of systematic murder of those people. What we've seen is people shot down arbitrarily and randomly when they are in, encountered by Russian troops and tanks, etc. But they, they're not going house to house murdering every Ukrainian they encounter. They're robbing every <laughs> Ukrainian apartment they encounter. And as they were being defeated, they committed what are clearly serious war crimes. But haven't, haven't there um, been accusations just in the past days about rape, about you know uh, Ukrainians being forced down on the side of a street so that tanks would roll over them? There's even been accusations of taking people out of their house and forcing them as prisoners of war to move into you know Russia itself. Does Isn't this the beginning of what we could see as a definition of genocide? You put your finger on the right word, David, beginning. So be beginnings can go in different directions. And at this point, Putin is warned that if he continues down that road and doesn't punish the officers directing the soldiers who committed these acts, then he will be uh, subject to the precedence of the Yugoslav and Rwanda tribunals, which said that if you have command responsibility over troops who are committing either war crimes, crimes against humanity, or genocide, then you as the senior officer in charge of those soldiers may be equally culpable for those crimes. So we have to, I mean, I hate to say this, David, but we have to go farther and the Russians have to go farther. I already know this from 
from hearing from Ukrainian teachers. And I haven't seen this reported in the media, but it's happening. And that is in the villages that the Russians took over in the first days of their invasion, they imposed Russian curricula on the teachers and their principals. And they punished principals who refused to introduce Russian history in the Moscow version of Russian history, which is that the Ukrainians were really always part of Russia, that uh, Ukraine did not exist as an independent uh, state, that the Ukrainians are actually truly Russians under the skin, and the Ukrainian people do not exist. And that in itself is a marker of possible genocide for the future, because if you deny the existence and you nullify a people like the Ukrainians, who, of whom there are many millions, and you say uh, there is no such thing as Ukrainian nationality, then obviously what you are doing is going down, taking the first step down the road to genocide. But it is not yet sustained and systematic, and it's still on the margins uh, and actually in the heartland of crimes against humanity and serious war crimes. I want to go back, if I can, to the word that you used there a second ago, uh, promiscuous, right, uh, a little bit ago. I see one of the downsides, and I've seen this anecdotally, maybe something in writing within the Jewish community, where uh, one of the downsides of you know, this a fear of promiscuity of the word genocide is that we end up limiting the definition and you have these people that repeat never again and never again, never again. Uh, and yet the same people are the ones seeking to limit the actions of others to fall outside the bounds of genocide, right? It's as if what they really mean is never again to us, um, but really, you know, they want to win, you know, the victim Olympics, so to speak. How do we reach these people that are horrified by the Holocaust, but they don't want to see it existing anywhere else outside of the bounds of their own community? And not necessarily just within the Jewish community. I'm sure it happens elsewhere. Um, but I, I can only speak from experience within this community. Well, I think the way to reach them is with the facts and uh, to remind them that genocide, if we were to apply the UN definition, existed in ancient times. It existed in early modern Europe. It existed long before the Holocaust. And that was Raphael Lemkin's point when he made the argument for making it a crime. He said, this has been going on. The Jewish people are just the latest victims of genocide. And he pointed to the Albigensian so-called heretics in southern France in the 13th and 14th centuries, for example, who were the victims of the state of France and of the Vatican, by the way. <laughs> mm -hmm. In those days when the Vatican paid mercenaries to do its work, even though it didn't have an army, the king of France invaded southern France and, and killed anybody who was considered a heretic by membership in the Albigensian faith. So uh, the, the murder of the Japanese Christians was a genocide in about 1637. The uh, murder of the Armenians was a genocide in 1915. And Hitler did say... Hitler used that as example number one, to say that nobody's ever going to think about the Jews again, you know, based on the Armenians. What he said is nobody's going to think about the Jews again. Who remembers the Armenians? So that's what I say to my uh, people who are Jewish like me, and who say, you know, you're, you're 
and by the way, this was an issue when we first began to teach about the history of genocide. I remember Yehuda Bauer was at a conference that I attended at Yale in about 1989. And Yehuda said, Frank, you know, I like your idea, but isn't what you're doing with Kurt Jonasson going to undermine the notion of the uniqueness of the Holocaust? And I said, and I, I have enormous respect for him. Thank goodness he's still with us. I said, Yehuda, this is going to put the Holocaust in perspective, and it will stand out as the single greatest genocide in Western history. But we need also to look at the history in Western Europe of, and Eastern Europe of genocide, and also the rest of the world, because the idea that this is a solution to the problem that faces perpetrators when they are not able to regard a group as an equal and they see it as a threat and they think that this group is trying to destroy them or they imagine that they can use this group as a scapegoat for all of the bad things they've already done, etc. People have to understand this is not a momentary problem that arose with Hitler. It's a problem of human societies. And Yehuda has been good enough to invite me now to a number of his conferences to present because he's come around to this view and he's making this view. And he and I both argue both the unique and universal elements of the Holocaust in the history of genocide. So um, just to wrap it up and uh, bring it all back to, to this final question, to what the, the issues of the day are, so to speak. What makes, is there something that is unique about what's happening in Ukraine? Are there markers of what we're looking at to be able to tell us, is this 1933 and it's going to escalate and we really do need to intervene? Or um, is this, and I don't mean this at all, I'm not being blasé, uh, just another set of war crimes that are horrible and horrific that need investigation, um, but there is nothing, you know, that is vastly different about this, right? What, what are we looking for in what's happening in Ukraine to know how this is different or not. So let me share my nightmares with you and your audience. The Soviets committed genocide against the Ukrainians in 1931. They did it again after World War II in 46 when Khrushchev was in charge and he was ordered by Stalin to collect all the wheat once more and send it to Moscow, even though he protested and got away with it with Stalin. He followed the order. So they've done it twice before this, using food as their weapon. This time, I am afraid that we could very well be on the path, on the road to genocide against the Ukrainians. We've taken the first steps. Putin's denial of the existence of Ukrainian nationality is one of those steps. His permission to soldiers of the Russian army to commit serious war crimes against them without any punishment is another step in that direction. The propaganda emanating from Moscow in which Putin proclaims himself the savior of the great Russian people and seeks to restore the Russian empire and its Soviet boundaries is a further step in that direction. He is in the grips of ideologues who surround him with ideas that are genocidal. They've already defined who they want to kill, which classes 
which groups among the Ukrainians have to be killed first. The intellectuals have to be killed first, together with the soldiers. And then they can go on and deal with the teachers and the poets and the songwriters and the dramatists and basically assault Ukrainian culture and annihilate it. So all of this gives us signals, early warning signs of a genocide to come if Putin continues down this road. And that's why we have to try to stop him now, because retrospective actions are not preventive, they're punitive. And the convention is designed not only for the punishment of the crime of genocide, but its prevention. Now, the Russians will veto any Security Council resolution calling for the actions that I support. So we have to do it through the General Assembly, and we have to do it through the European Union and through NATO. But we, there are many things we can do. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that eye-opening um, overview. And uh, hopefully that does not portend for what the future will hold, and we will be able to keep this in check. Um, but we hope to, uh, you know, if there's any other issues, we'll gladly uh, have to call on you and uh, help us walk through some of these other issues again. Dr. Chalk, thank you for coming on Bonjour High. Thank you for your interest. You've already helped to do your bit to prevent what I fear. As always, we'd love to hear what you uh, think. Uh, please email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to let us know what you thought. As news and images of civilian deaths emerged this week from Bukha and other parts of Ukraine, the Canadian government announced that it is sending an RCMP unit to investigate alleged war crimes. And while this is a promising development, there are still those who want Canada to be doing more. With us to talk about this is Bob Ray. Um, Mr. Ambassador Ray is the Canadian ambassador to the United Nations. Mr. Ray, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you so much. Good to join you. Mr. Ray, we just interviewed Frank Chalk who uh, told us that while he doesn't think that what is happening right now is a genocide, we really are on the cusp of it becoming one. The Jewish community is all too aware of the pleas for assistance that fell on deaf ears from 1933 on. What are you doing to make sure that this isn't repeated? Great question. I have to say, I mean, I think that is the question. Um, I, I think that, you know, when you think back in history, not only to to the Holocaust and to the to the period after Hitler's victory in, uh, in Germany. But if you look at uh, what happened in, uh, in Armenia in, in 1914, 1915, um, I think all, all of your listeners would benefit from reading Sam Power's wonderful book, uh, The Problem from Hell, which is a, a, a really an excellent study of not only historical genocide, but also uh, present day uh, examples, terrible examples from from Wanda, I had the opportunity, unfortunately, to to be in the the, the camp at Cox's Bazaar just a month after a million people were forced to leave uh, Myanmar with horrendous stories of what had, of what had happened to them, and, and no doubt in my mind at all that the issue of genocide was going to be front and center in terms of the judicial determination. So, the first thing I think we're doing here in New York and everywhere is is really is continuing to call out what what is taking place so that people understand that this is not just happening with nobody noticing or with people pretending that it isn't happening. I think the critical challenge that we face in this particular case uh, has to do with this issue of Russia's nuclear capacity and what that, what that poses as a risk uh, or potential risk to uh, a, a catastrophe becoming even more of a catastrophe. 
and more people dying as a result of, of, uh, of, of people not thinking through consequentially uh, what needs to be done. But having said that, I think we all have to recognize that a Russian, anything, anything that looks like a Russian victory or a Russian win uh, over Ukraine would, would be horrendous. Because what they're doing is basically denying the existence of a separate country. They're treating it like a colony. They're moving in with, with a sense that they can do this. They've got the power to do it. Nobody's going to stop them. Uh, and without the slightest repentance of, of, for what they're doing. And also without, without any sense of the proportionality of what they're doing compared to the situation that they're encountering. I mean, th th there's different categories, right? There's, there's, there's crimes against humanity, which are set out in the Rome Statute, which Canada is a signatory to. There's the issue of genocide, which is covered by the Genocide Convention, which Canada is also a party to. And then there are what are, what are often loosely called war crimes, uh, which has to do with, in particular with the crimes that are committed in combat. Uh, and the, sometimes people are surprised to hear, well, what's the difference? And you say, well, the crimes against humanity is you think about what are the crimes that, that, that have been committed or are being committed against civilian populations um, and think of forcible deportation, think of the attempts to, to, to destroy uh, a people, think of all the examples we can, we can. they're all enumerated in the, in the Rome Statute. They're very, very clear. War crimes are something slightly different in that they really focus on, well, what, what happens in combat? Can you, you're not allowed to torture people. You're not allowed to kill people indiscriminately. You're not, not allowed to take prisoners and then shoot them. Um, you know, there are basic protocols that are supposed to be followed. They're listed and they're set out in the, both sets of Geneva Conventions, which have been passed and ratified by a number of countries over many, many, many years. And I think when we look at this situation in Ukraine, it really covers the, all of the gamut of these issues that you know, people are now looking at and saying, well, what can we do to deal with this? And there's two, two questions. One is, how do we hold people to account? Which essentially is a legal question. And the other one is, how do we stop it? Um, and that I think is, a, is more of a political, diplomatic and military question but and so when, when we about, look at it from our point of view here, we're really trying to deal with both those issues. Now, if you're talking about how do we actually stop this, you know, it's all very well good to criticize and condemn. But, you know, what Prime Minister Zelensky has talked about is what good is the UN at this point if Russia still has a veto and on the council, if you can have everyone united in the world and Russia just says too bad, tough luck, we're ignoring it, then what is what good is the UN? I'm going to be a heretic here and say the, the veto is not the issue. We can overcome the veto. The General Assembly could overcome the veto quite easily. Uh, we overcame the veto in during the Korean War. The, the Russian veto did not stop the United Nations from uh, agreeing to go into uh, Korea in order to stop an invasion. Uh, that we decided to do that. And uh, it, so the veto is, 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 the impact of the veto is slightly exaggerated, nor is it is it right to simply talk about the United Nations as if that was sort of an organizational thing where the Secretary General could say, okay, we're all going into all our countries, and all our members are, are going to go into Ukraine and we're going to do this. He doesn't have the power to do that. He wasn't given the power to do that. No nation state would give up that power to the Secretary General. 
So what do we have? We have the member states who have the right under Article 51 of the, of the charter to join in Ukraine's self-defense. We have, we have the right to do that. Um, and it has to be said that to this point, um, countries have agreed to supply Ukraine with weapons. We've agreed to support Ukraine uh, economically uh, and strategically. We've agreed to share uh, a capacity to respond, uh, but we have not agreed to send troops. And that has been a decision that uh, Canada has made and other countries have made. Um, and I go back to my point, why is that? Well, the reason is because the, the, the fear is that if NATO countries decide that they're gonna go and respond to the aggression, that there is a risk that the Russians would do something even more irrational. Now, do I think, <laughs> do I think that this is something that should, should be taken off the table? We just say, no, that's never gonna happen. Well, I don't think in all conscience we can do that. I think we have to recognize that all every step of the way you're calculating risk of action and you're calculating the risk of inaction. And I so, think that's something we have to continue to calculate. I just want to bring it back to the idea of genocide. Uh, Avi and David had a conversation earlier with Frank Chalk. And he was saying, as uh, Avi mentioned, that he felt it wasn't a genocide, but it was getting dangerously close to becoming one. So um, what's your take on this? And if you don't think that it's a genocide, what would it take for us to call it that as a country? I, I, again, I think we have to understand that these things happen in real time. There are elements to this which have a genocidal element, I think, that has to be understood. Uh, President Putin doesn't recognize the, a, a separate nation called Ukraine. He said it's a made up country, not a real place. But when you start talking about something being not a real place, then in a way you're talking about people not being real people. Um, or when you refer to them, you refer to the entire Ukrainian national project as a Nazi project. That's another way of saying it's okay to kill Nazis. So we can do that, that's, that's, that's fine. Um, so I would not be as categorical as Frank, who I admire tremendously and, and don't, I'm not arguing with, I'm just saying, I, I think it's a continuum of things. The thing that all genocides have in common is that they start with hatred. They start with hate speech. They then move on to a, a, a diminution of the other and to a, a way of separating them out and describing them in particularly horrendous terms. And then slowly, slowly, and, and as you know, it's not a project which is about destroying a whole people. There's this illusion, I think, in, in much thinking or writing about the Holocaust to think that the genocide and Holocaust think that, that, that it, it, in order to be called a, a genocide, it has to mean that you want to destroy a people in whole. Well, no, it says actually the genocide convention says in whole or in part. So technically speaking, you could kill five people and could, you could call it a genocide because of the motivation, because of the intent, and because that's what you intended to do. So I, I don't think much is gained by kind of parsing this thing and saying, saying, well, it's not a genocide yet. Well, I mean, you still have an obligation to stop it if you think it's heading in that direction. It's still a crime against humanity. You can't say, well, it's not that bad because it's not a genocide. A lot of horrible things are not genocide, perhaps technically, but they're on the spectrum. And the, and the point is, it is a spectrum and it's an event happening in real time. 
which is why I think we should be on maximum alert to understand the elements of what is happening. And that's what I've been trying to do here at the UN is to say, do not underestimate um, the horror that is unfolding before our eyes. And do not underestimate the evil intent that is there and do not under, underestimate its consequences. Because I, I, I genuinely believe this, not because I enjoy running around saying these things, but because I think it is, it is something that is happening and in real time and our inability to stop it is, um, is tragic, frankly. And, and, and I do think we have to always look at ourselves in the mirror and say, what more can we do? Are we doing enough? Uh, should we be doing more, um, both militarily, diplomatically, politically, any way you want to try and do it? But uh, I, I firmly believe that we, we, still, we still haven't met the test of success, that's for sure. We haven't been able to stop the Russians. So, you know, uh, it's remarkable, first of all, to hear your voice on this, um, both here and on Twitter, um, as being this really forceful, like you said, this, this voice of, of a person knowing that this is a red alert. Um, and yet, while it's somewhat understandable to recognize that the Canadian government uh, is a little more reticent because of the finger on the proverbial red button that they are, you know, that they're afraid of, um, how do we deal with this balance between the two, right? Because at the end of the day, right, we may want to recognize that this is it, but we, as you're saying, nobody really wants to go in there um, with guns blazing. Um, how does a government actually, if, you know, a government had, you know, any, uh, a magic wand to go and do anything that they want, what actually could happen? Um, and also to a certain lesser extent, what do we as uh, civilians do um, other than just be aware and alert and wear a red and yellow, you know, um, you know, ribbon and, and then move on? Well, I don't think we move on at all. I mean, I think we have to keep our eye on it. The thing we have to understand is that it's, it's, it's not just one country. It's not Canada saying by itself. We don't just sit down and say, okay, let's do this. Because whatever we do has to be thought out logistically. It has to be thought out in order to be effective, in order to be consequential. It has to be done together with others. There's just a lot of steps along the way that we have to be constantly taking. And one of the things that I think that everyone should know is Canada is part of a, obviously we're part of the NATO alliance. Um, part of what I do here in New York is to try to say it's not just because we're part of the NATO alliance that we need to be concerned, it's because we're part of the United Nations. And that's why I keep going back and I've you know, become a bit notorious for it. I just say, let's go back to the charter. Look at what the charter says. What is the charter all about? We're part of the UN. And in the UN, it says any, any nation can defend itself uh, and any group of nations can decide that they are going to assist as long as they advise the UN. That's what we're doing. Um, and, 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 and then to say that you know, we are, I think, legally, I believe, technically, we are already a party to this conflict. Canada is a party to the conflict because we've been supplying the, one of the combatants with, uh, with military capacity. We've trained them for seven or eight years prior to the war breaking out. We've been providing them with weaponry. So as any number of other NATO countries have been doing this and there will be more to come. So the suggestion somehow that we're not party to this conflict is nonsense. Of course we're parties to the conflict. We're not neutral about what happens to, to Ukraine. We're not like uh, the British and the French government were during the Spanish Civil War where they just sort of said, no, we're not gonna get involved. And of course the Germans and the Italians- We also the have Soviet the largest Ukrainian diaspora in the world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you for being a strident voice in the UN and on the global stage. And uh, thank you for speaking with us on Bourgeois High. Thanks so much. Good to talk to you. Take care.
for this week's Word of Wisdom. We send David to talk to his rabbi, Rabbi Mark Glicksman from Calgary, Alberta. And I would just like to add that, you know, last week it was discovered this big secret that maybe I'm not part of the Kohanim tribe itself, but I have some updates if, if y'all are interested in knowing. This is coming directly from my father itself, and he says, Hello, David. The only proof I can offer is that your paternal great-grandfather, Zadie Daniel, dragooned me, meaning my father, when I turned 13 to do the Kohanim blessing with him. So definitely your Zadie was a son of a Kohen. So you have it on both sides. I have right? it all. Exactly like Maimonides said, if you are uh, if you are a Kohen, if you are the daughter of a Kohen, you're supposed to marry a Kohen, and that's what your grandmother must have done. There you go. I don't think I'm marrying a Kohen, but oh well. Fair enough. Let's go to the tape. If you've been listening to Bonjour Chai the past couple of weeks, you'll know that Avi has graciously been answering all my Kohanim questions, from what are the duties of the priestly clan to how I can actually prove my bona fides. But being a Reformed Jew, I wanted to know if any of that makes any difference in my stream of Judaism. So to continue my investigation, I'm seeking out the answer with my rabbi, Rabbi Mark Lichtman. Rabbi, welcome back. Thank you, David. It's great to be here with you. This is now your second time on the show. I'm, I'm honored. So uh, I want to get right into it. What does Reform Judaism have to say, if anything, about Kohanim? Well, you know, it's interesting. When you contacted me uh, yesterday to, to set this uh, to set up a time for us to talk, I, I was thinking to myself, this is going to be a very brief conversation because early on in Reform Judaism, we really did away with the the, the whole Kohanim and then the Leviim and then the Israelite designations. It's all it's it's uh, it, it really becomes something of a caste system, and uh, early Reform Judaism suggested, look, this is, uh, you know, a Jew is a Jew. And so we uh, really don't af um, uh, give any, um, we, we, we don't distinguish uh, 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 members of our community in that way. So yeah, I know uh, uh, in some of the more uh, halachically observant movements, uh, the Kohanim uh, will not attend funerals except for an immediate family member they have special ritual functions we really don't don't do any of that and yet of course it's it's sort of um it, it, the the many of these distinctions are kind of there in a subterranean way sort of influencing Judaism in subtle historic ways but um uh but explicitly we we don't we don't uh um uh afford any privileges or responsibilities to people with priestly or levitical ancestry so you're saying if I show up to services sometime during the week, I cannot expect any special type of treatment if I come no uh no honoring or anything like that. No, I'm not saying that because you are David Sklar and we would treat you in the most special way and give you every honor we we uh, possibly could. But we would do that even if you weren't a, a, co a, co a Kohen. That, uh, uh, um, that is, is ju just not part of, of our practice. If only all synagogues could treat David Sklar's as, as a very special being, that would, I, I think, encourage me to attend probably more services than I do now. You mentioned, you mentioned it was more of a historical decision. Do you know anything about that historical decision when the reform movement decided to sort of do away with these different types? It, it was, I, I, I don't know the specific date, but I know that it was certainly in the 19th century. Uh, the, um, the, uh, uh, this was uh, uh, a time when, when uh, Judaism was really trying to, uh, when Reform Judaism was really trying to pride itself on being 
uh, an enlightened, educated form of Judaism. I mean, since then we've changed our, our views of what it means to be enlightened, of course. But it would be this uh, distinction based on ancestry was not seen as being consistent with Judaism, nor was it uh, seen, seen as being consistent with Western thought either. Um, uh, this was at a time when uh, uh, when, you know, the divine right of kings, for example, was being called into question. Uh, people shouldn't have any special rights because of, of their ancestry. And, of course, one becomes a Kohen because, uh, you know, not by any... Uh, not by any virtue of their own, but not by virtue of their own supreme character or by any act whatsoever. It's it's simply an inherited title, and so it it, it came around at a time when those inherited titles were really uh, uh, being called into question and often done away with. And Reform Judaism got on that bandwagon. So then, if I was to attend a funeral, I would be able to go to the cemetery itself. I wouldn't have to, you know, uh, separate myself from any of the other people attending. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, you could even marry a person who's divorced. Uh, you could, um, you, you could, um, you, you know, we, we would not necessarily uh, give you the first aliyah at a Torah service. You might uh, get the second or third or seventh, but we'd be sure to call you out for at least one because you deserve it. Uh, but, uh, but again, not because you're, you're a Kohen. And and then you were sort of saying that this you've done away with all the different types of of hereditary titles in the reform movement itself as well too. Is there anything else that the reform movement sort of decided to get rid of early on in in this stream of Judaism as I was coming more into the North American Jewish community? Oh well, lots of, of things. I mean, you read some of the nineteenth century platforms of Reform Judaism, and they say things like. Uh, uh, I forget the specific wording, but they say keeping kosher, for example, interferes with Judaism rather than advances it. Same with distinctive clothing. Same with, um, uh, I mean, early, early on, Reformed Judaism uh, uh, rejected Zionism as uh, antithetical to the modern spirit. Since then, as a movement, we, we've uh, overwhelmingly em embraced it. But early Reform did away with that as well. There, there, there were a lot of things that Reform did away with, much of which, of course, in the over the, the the decades since then, the century and a half uh, or, or or more since then, re, uh, many of these things reform has embraced. But early on, there was a lot of of uh, there were a lot of things that, that early reform did away with. Do you think that the reform movement would ever come back, and that would be an interest to the community when they discuss that? Hey, we should bring back some of these things because I know Reform Judaism has tinkered with when we should have Shabbat. It should be on a Saturday or it should be on a Sunday. Kosher, as you mentioned itself, do you think they're ever going to have a discussion where they sort of say, "Hey, you know what? Maybe we're we're missing something here that makes us special, unique to the Jewish community. We should bring back the Kohanim." Uh, I just want to quibble with one small detail of what you said, even though it's not the essence of your que your question. Quibble away. Reform Judaism as a movement then didn't ever move Shabbat to Sunday. Uh, what did happen is that in many early Reformed synagogues, the major weekly service was on a Sunday, but they did a weekday service. Um, and yet, you're, the, overall, your question is right. We've done, we, we have uh, re-embraced much of what we once did away with. Um, these days, uh, you know, in Reformed synagogues, 
uh, certainly in Canada and in many in the United States too, most of the men and now in more and more women as well, sometimes even a majority of the women will be wearing kippah and talit at the appropriate times. You'll even see some Jews, Reformed Jews, wearing tefillin. Um, uh, we, we are, as I said earlier, an overwhelmingly Zionist movement. Having said all of those things, each of those, those practices was brought back in a sort of a uh, in its own time, based on a variety of different reasons, I haven't heard anybody suggest that we should uh, reestablish the system of Kohanim and Levites uh, to distinguish some Jews from others. So, I mean, look, it could happen. I I can't I can't predict. I mean, I've long since, uh, uh, long ago, I've, I've ceased trying to predict what's going to be happening in the future. But, but what I can say is that there is, is nothing like a kind of hue and cry for the re-embrace of these things, uh, of these pra practices like there once was. Now, having said that, I will give you an interesting example to the contrary. Um, uh, there is a, a, a life cycle event called Pidyon Haben. Pidyon Haben is the redemption of the firstborn. Uh, the Torah says that the firstborn is it needs to go and, and serve with the priests at the temple. And so uh, um, in conservative and Orthodox Judaism and others as well, they will, they will often have a ceremony when the firstborn son turns 30 days old of redeeming that firstborn from temple service by giving an item of value, usually a small amount of money or something, to a Kohen in order to um, make it so that this firstborn son doesn't have to serve in the temple. Um, I never quite understood that because we don't really have a temple anymore, but, but that was the, that, that's the practice. Some people, in, and I've never officiated at one of these ceremonies because we don't have those distinctions with the, the Kohanim as we've been discussing. However, many people in reform have been suge suggesting that we should, in a more egalitarian and, uh, and non-hierarchical way, redeem this service of the redemption of the firstborn um, uh, in the following way. Anybody who's ever had a kid knows that, you know, uh, you come home from the hospital with this eight-pound bundle of joy, and you are totally overwhelmed as new parents by the responsibilities in, entailed in, in taking care of this thing. Uh, you, uh, you, you know, you saying to yourself, oh my goodness, I'm never ever going to get a full night's sleep again, and we won't ever be able to go out to grown-up movies again, and my life will never be quiet and relaxed again, and oh my goodness, I don't know that I could do this. And maybe what we need for new parents of children, either boys or girls, is a ceremony in which we say, you know what? They told me this parenting thing was hard. We said we believed them, but now we really and fully know what they meant. And despite all the difficulty, despite the uh, exhaustion involved in being a parent, God, we really want to keep this kid and we really want to continue being parents. We're, we're, in, we're in this for good. Um, so that, you know, that is a ceremony that started uh, with, 
and, and, and traditionally involves a Kohen being a very key part of the ceremony. And we're, we're talking about maintaining that ceremony, but in a way that doesn't really involve the, uh, the Kohanim. So that's why I say it still kind of undergirds a lot of what's, what Reform Judaism does, even though we've rejected those traditional roles. So who knows, maybe in the future... Uh, I will be blessed for the first Aliyah uh, as an official Kohanim at B'nai Tikva. You know what? Uh, I'm, I'm, sh- I, I, uh, I'm sure we could do far worse. Very. Uh, Rabbi Glickman, thank you so much uh, for this chat. I really appreciate it. Thank you, David. It's always a joy to speak with you. Take care. Now's the time in our show where we talk about Nachas, that thing that makes us feel good about being Jewish or newish in Canada or not today or this week. David, what's your Nachas of the Week? It's going to go to Liana Brody. I've been working for the past two weeks with her on a brand new script of hers. It's called Biological. So Liana is a master's student at the U of C, uh, grew up Jewish in an adopted family. So her biological father was Jewish. She grew up with a uh, adopted father who was Jewish as well. And it's a very personal project for her, this play. It's all about abandonment and adoption. Um, and we're going to be doing three readings at the University of Calgary. So really just big congrats to Liana, Brody, and to everyone in the cast and crew. I actually saw that pop up just right before we started recording this because I have her on Facebook and I saw your name tagged. I was like, ooh, David's working. Yay. Oh, oh, you know her. Uh, vaguely. I mean, through the Vancouver theater community, we tried to meet up for many, many months and it just never worked out. And now she doesn't live there and I don't live there either. So we'll meet at some point, I'm sure. She seems to get around. She does, yes. Alana, what's your nachas? So on Monday, it was a very, very special and heartwarming event that I got to attend. My great-grandmother's first cousin, Jack, uh, who also is Yankel Bornstein, turned 98 years old. He is uh, the sole Holocaust survivor from my great-grandmother's side of the family. And uh, his son, Avi, not Avi Feingold, Avi Bornstein, um, who lives in Israel now, uh, made this whole presentation about Jack's life. And there were people who tuned in from all over the world, from the US, from Israel, from Canada. And his son actually went to his dad's hometown of Ostrowitz in Poland to do this event. And he's been gathering all different like pictures and interviews. And he got pictures of like, this is where Jack's dad's uh, soda factory was. And this is what it looks like now. And this is a school that he would have gone to. And this is where the shul stood. Um, And it was really, really amazing because when I first moved to Toronto, I stayed with Jack's children and Jack also in the house. And I got to hear all these stories firsthand. And then it was almost like I read the book and then I got to see the movie. Like these are real stories. And then I got to see like the pictures of all the things that he had described to me. Um, So it was really amazing. And he's honestly in great shape for his age. He goes on like hour long walks every day with his um, caretakers, and he's just such a funny and incredible person. So happy birthday to my cousin, Yankel Bornstein. Happy birthday from the Frozen Chosen. Happy birthday, Yankel. I would like to have as my nachas this ancient archaeological discovery. Um, this a couple weeks ago, um, I don't know if you guys read this story, but there was a tablet containing the words of an ancient Hebrew curse that predates the Dead Sea Scrolls, was uncovered and translated by an archaeologist. And um, they think that it's proof that the Bible could be hundreds of years older than the, the scholars previously thought. So it's really nice. It's a nice folded little piece of tablet uh, tablet of clay that they was uh, scratch, scratched on a very 
various words. I'm more fascinated by the words of it. Um, and clearly this is the most Jewish thing you can possibly imagine. Um, they found this small folded lead tablet, sorry, not a, a uh, clay tablet, on Mount Aval in Israel. And it reads, cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yahweh, you will die cursed, cursed you will surely die, cursed by Yahweh, cursed, cursed, cursed. Um, this is, uh, it's classified as a defixio, which is Latin for a cursed tablet. And it's like two by two centimeters. And like, I mean, clearly this to me shows that Yiddish curses and are so fundamentally and profoundly Jewish that that's what we do, right? When you're mad, you curse something and you do it. Uh, I mean, to be really serious about it, it's, um, these tablets were often used as protection, as amulets, as a way to ward off evil, to take the cursedness, fold it up, and put it away so that you didn't have to worry about it. Um, the other fascinating piece about it is that it was found on Mount Eval, which um, is one of the two mountains that is mentioned in the Bible when the Israelites are about to cross over into the um, into the land of Israel, and they put half the people on one mountain and half the people on the other. Uh, Mount Grizim, uh, the people that were on Mount Grizim had all the blessings directed to them. I mean, not to them specifically, but that's, it was, the blessings were for Mount Grizim, and the curses were for Mount Eval, and Mount Eval clearly has become, became known as this place to deposit and place one's curses, and this um, tablet uh, was on Mount Eval, which just goes to show that this really was a t place where people would go and place their curses. Um, people, I highly encourage you, we should get back into the practice of um, t cursed tablets, right? To like cursed, cursed, cursed. We should put all these Yiddish curses on there, on these tablets, fold them up and carry them as amulets, like on our keychains um, to ward off evil. I think it's a wonderful deep Jewish practice that clearly goes back thousands of years. That is my Nachas of the week. I'd be so curious to learn more about that part of Judaism. I feel like we didn't really talk about that. Like, I know we have like the evil eye. The cursing part? No, but not even just the curses, but that, that part, like the mysticism aspect of like, you know, I feel like I didn't really learn about that. Maybe some other time. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of April 8th, Parashat Mitzorah Shabbat Hagadol. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice, and as always, you can email us with comments at Bonjour at the cjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. 